This is Crime Beat, brought to you by Ad Taxi. Take your digital advertising to a higher level. With metrics that matter, Ad Taxi can boost your campaign performance, increase efficiency, and optimize your results. To learn more about our customized solutions, visit adtaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. Early Dawson was one of five Dawson boys raised on Rosedale Avenue in Youngstown. He went to high school in Youngstown, and then he left to join the Air Force. He was so gung-ho that when he left the Air Force, he joined the Marines. He was a stocky guy with a round, ruddy face. Everybody liked Early Dawson. He was red, white, and blue. Gunnery Sergeant Early Dawson's distinguished military career ended in 1971 when he was 40 years old, just in time for him to get involved in the biggest bank heist in U.S. history without even knowing it. He settled down in a cookie-cutter house in a cookie-cutter neighborhood in Tustin, California, about 20 miles from the United California Bank. Here's the thing you have to know about Early Dawson. When he was in high school, he was buddies with that rat bastard Chuck Mulligan. I say rat bastard because the simple fact that he was a friend of Chuck Mulligan ruined Early Dawson's life. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This podcast is going to cover the half-century history of the top U.S. bank burglary of all time. From the moment it was just a twinkle in the eye of a master thief to the long weekend in March of 1972 when the crew went after Nixon's money to the investigation in which only one of the thieves got away to the night this story will appear on the big screen as a Hollywood movie. This is episode three of Stealing Nixon's Millions, The Execution. In March of 1972, Chuck Mulligan came to Southern California as a member of Dinzio's crew to rip off the president. When there was a glitch that delayed the heist for a week, Chuck had some time to kill, so he thought it would be okay to call his old high school buddy Early Dawson. This is where FBI agent Frank Calley wanted to interject. Calley himself had called Dinzio a genius, but contacting an outsider? That was the first of many mistakes they would make. If they were what? smart, they would not, They would have made an honest living, but uh, like you and I do. You know, right. They thought they could beat the system. They always thought to the last second. They made the case for us. Right. They made the case for us with their mistakes. I mean, the burglary was great. It's the screw-ups afterwards that really made the case that uh, they screwed it up. They, they, they got a little, they left a couple things behind that they shouldn't have left behind. Right. 
Chuck met Early at the Walnut Room, a seedy Tustin bar near Early's house. They don't serve food at the Walnut Room, only drunkenness. Unlike many places mentioned in this podcast, the Walnut Room today is much like it was in 1972. Over a couple of beers, Chuck asked Early if he could use his garage. Chuck said he had this sweet 1962 Olds Super 88 he wanted to keep there. Being a nice guy, Early Dawson said, Sure. Chuck asked for one more favor. One night coming up, how would you and your wife like to go out to a nice dinner? I've got a buddy who'll give you a couple hundred bucks and pay for the whole thing as a way of saying thank you for letting us use your garage. Being a nice guy, Early Dawson said, Sure. On Friday, March 24, 1972, the President of the United States took a helicopter from the White House to Camp David, the retreat in Maryland. It was movie night for Nixon. His presidential daily diary shows he spent the evening with his longtime friend and investment advisor, B.B. Rebozo. Remember Rebozo? He's the guy who admitted hiding secret campaign contributions in a safe deposit box in Florida. Nixon and Rebozo watched The Grapes of Wrath, starring Henry Fonda. One thing you may not know about Richard Nixon, he was a prolific movie watcher. Boston Globe reporter Mark Feeney wrote a book called Nixon at the Movies. My unofficial count of all the movies Nixon watched from his inauguration in 1969 to his resignation in 1974 was 528. That list included The Great Bank Robbery, To Catch a Thief, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Take the Money and Run, and The Sting, twice. Apparently, Nixon liked a good heist movie. It's too bad he never got to see one of my favorite movies of all time, All the President's Men, while he was in office. Have you been following our countdown of the best bank heist movies? Number 12 was Point Break. Number 11, Set It Off. Number 10, The Bank Job. Number 9, The Town. Now we're at number 8, Bonnie and Clyde. It was controversial because of its violence and sexuality. Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty were great long before they screwed up the Best Picture announcement at the Oscars. Gene Wilder made his film debut with a small part as an undertaker. Number seven is Dog Day Afternoon. It's a two-hour-long acting exhibition by Al Pacino with John Cazal as his bank robbery partner. Cazal only appeared in five films. Check out this list. The Godfather, The Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, The Conversation, and The Deer Hunter. That's an incredible list. The bank robbery is the setting for Dog Day Afternoon, but the film has so little to do with the normal bank heist motivations. It's based on a true story about a robbery in Brooklyn on August 22, 1972, six months after Emil Dinzio's crew went after the president's money. On Friday, March 24, 1972, the number one song in America was by the band America, A Horse With No Name. The number one box office movie was a little film you may have heard of called The Godfather, about the Corleones, an Italian crime family. In Laguna Niguel, California, another crime family was dressed all in black and heading toward the United California Bank on the corner of Crown Valley Parkway and Pacific Coast Highway in Monarch Bay Plaza. The bank must have looked like a strawberry sheet cake with its reddish tile roof. What was about to happen became legend in the families of those involved. Check out what Ronnie Barber's daughter, Veronica, said about the crime. I laugh about it because it's a bank. Understandably, they're insured, but at the end of the day, nobody got hurt. And it's, it's kind of cool to me. I, I may be twisted, but they went 
after Nixon's stolen money anyway, which doesn't belong to nobody. Emil and James Dinzio, Emil's brother-in-law Chuck, Phil Christopher, and Charlie Brockles pulled out the power tools they had hidden in the bushes. The tools were there this time. The thieves stole a ladder from a nearby Baptist church. Harry Barber wasn't with the crew. He was in a car in the Monarch Bay parking lot. It was his job to listen to the police frequency on the shortwave radio. He carried a walkie-talkie so he could communicate with Emil if he saw or heard any police activity. Harry was the designated getaway driver. His only job was to keep his eyes and ears open. The burglary happened in stages. Their first focus was the exterior alarm. If they couldn't get past that, they didn't deserve to be there. Emil and James climbed up the stolen ladder to the rooftop above the alarm, which was screwed to the side of the building. Emil sprayed liquid styrofoam into the alarm. When the liquid hardened, the clangor couldn't ring. The men gathered in the flower bed outside the bank. They kept scooping dirt into burlap bags. When they had filled 20 bags, they carried them up the ladder and plopped them onto the roof. Emil tapped into the power source in the bank's air conditioner. Once that was done, they could plug in power tools. The weakest part of the bank was its plywood roof. The crew easily cut a hole in the roof. They dropped inside, landing on the concrete roof of the vault. They piled up the burlap bags full of dirt. Emil found the bank's control panel and rewired the alarm system so it would stay active without signaling the Orange County Sheriff's Department that anyone was inside the bank. With a power drill, the crew cut 16 holes in the concrete roof of the vault. Into each hole they slipped a stick of dynamite. They covered all the dynamite with nine bags of dirt to muffle the sound. With the remaining 11 bags, they buried Emil so he could set the blast without being killed by the explosion. The rest of them crawled out of the bank and hid in the bushes. The goal was to blow a hole in the roof of the vault without anyone noticing. Here's what really happened. A big chunk of southern Orange County went kaboom. Emil and the crew thought they were cooked. But nothing happened. Maybe the boom of the blast blended with the sound of Pacific Coast Highway. Or maybe it was muffled by the sound of the waves in the Pacific Ocean. The bank shared a parking lot with a Safeway grocery store and a bar about 100 feet away. The patrons must have felt a shake. But while Southern Californians panic at the first sign of rain, they don't get rattled by earthquakes. No one reacted. So here's what we've learned so far. In 1972, you could explode 16 sticks of dynamite at one time, and no one would call the cops. The burglars waited a few minutes just to make sure the coast was clear. Then they crawled back up the ladder. Emil crawled out from under the burlap bags like a movie monster. He wiped himself off, and he was ready to go. They used acetylene torches to cut through the rebar in the concrete. Then the Youngstown crew dropped into the vault. 500 safe deposit boxes were just sitting there, ready to be infringed. They were armed with two sledgehammers. The first one was shaved to a point. The second one was used to bash the first. I've got to stop here. This is where the story gets a little murky. In the 46 years since this crime occurred, the details may have been stretched and padded depending on the memory or intention of the person telling the story. I'll tell you what people have told me. The first time I interviewed Harry Barber, he told me the crew dropped into the bank with no idea where Nixon's money was hidden. They stared at 500 safe deposit boxes and started popping them open at random. I envisioned them arguing over where to start. Do we start at box number one? 
Box number 500? Or somewhere in the middle? I asked Harry how they would know what they found Nixon's money. He said, quote, Because we know what 30 fucking million dollars looks like. Harry said the crew stuffed loot in bags. There was cash and securities and stocks and bonds, and there were valuables spilling out all over the place. There was so much money they could barely carry it. Melissa Dinzio, Emil's daughter, tells a different story. She said Nixon kept his money in two safe deposit boxes. This is what she told radio station WOCA in 2014. My father even had the exact numbers of the safety deposit boxes. Here's my question. How big were those boxes? The pictures of the crime scene show the boxes were about the size of a normal desk drawer. If you say for the sake of argument that the boxes were filled with neatly stacked $100 bills, then a million dollars would be 43 inches tall, or the size of a typical five-year-old child. How many millions, or five-year-old children, could you fit in two boxes? How many safe deposit boxes would it take to hold $10 million, $20 million, $30 million? What if the money wasn't new, crisp, $100 bills? What if it was 20s? What if the cash was crumpled or rolled with rubber bands? Remember, Harry said the money was spilling out all over the place. Emil Dinzio didn't give interviews, but he did write a book. It's called Inside the Vault. The book offers Emil's recollections about the crime. It includes details about how he beat the alarms, and about a third of the book is a rant against the FBI, accusing agents of planting evidence, lying, and coaxing witnesses to lie. Here's what he said about Nixon's money. Emil said he found $12 million in two safe deposit boxes precisely where Jimmy Hoffa's connection told him it would be. He said they opened those boxes first. He said the money was in denominations of $500 and $1,000 bills. Otherwise, it wouldn't have fit in two boxes, and it would have been too cumbersome to carry. Most importantly, he said he didn't tell the other members of his crew that he found Nixon's money. He said he hid it in the bushes, then in the trunk of the car, then in a U-Haul trailer, until he took it to Las Vegas where it was laundered. Emil's book raises several questions. If he got Nixon's money on the first night, why did he risk breaking into the bank two more times? And if this money was from extorted campaign donations by the Teamsters and the dairy farmers, why did they make those secret donations in such large and rare bills? And if he didn't tell his crew about Nixon's money, what did he tell them? What did they think they had stolen? Here's what the FBI said about Nixon's money. It wasn't there. Here's Agent Callie. I interviewed him. Yeah. And they said Nixon. What do you think? I think it's crap. I think it's total crap. Nixon, first thing, if they'd done their homework, which I think they did, Nixon didn't have any connection with that bank at all down there. He, and this was in the, San Clemente, his banking was not in that bank, it was elsewhere. Nixon had nothing. Nixon did not have any anything in that bank at the time at all. Nixon's name never came up whatsoever until later on. Now, they may have thought that Nixon's money would be there, but there's a lot of bigger, better banks closer to San Clemente. There was no way of knowing how Nixon's money would be there unless someone just told them and they ran on a lark because there was no indication and there never was any case Nixon having funds in that bank at that time. Did you check? Yes, we did. We had a list of all the depositors in the bank at that time. Mm-hmm. And we had also uh, uh, made inquiry of two, over a beer or two with 
Secret Service at the time, an informal type thing, because we knew he didn't have anything in that bank. We'd heard about it immediately. Here are the facts we know are true. Seven men with connections to Youngstown helped plan and execute the burglary of the United California Bank that began on March 24, 1972, with the intent to steal $30 million from the president. When they finished, they had taken millions worth of cash, securities, bonds, jewelry, and gold coins. There is no way to say with 100% certainty how much was actually stolen or if the president's money was part of the loot. In 2002, Harry told me he was pissed off when they didn't get Nixon's money. They found out later that Nixon had an account at Bank of America in San Clemente, nine miles away from Laguna Niguel. This is what Harry says today. We found out that they had split the banks, Bibi Verbozo and Nixon, because it was too much money to put in one bank. But we never found out about the other bank, and we probably went after it too. So... Was it a mistake to go to that bank? Because Nixon's bank was nine miles away. But this was Nixon's bank. He, he, he used a phony name in this one. This was his money. There's more to this Nixon argument that we will examine in episode four. Much more. Did they get Nixon's money? That's what we don't know. Here's what we do know. They weren't satisfied with their take on that first night. The story of what happened to the guys who tried to rip off the president was just getting started. As they climbed out of the bank, they did something that made them the best crew of all time. They replaced the plywood on the roof and tarred the hole shut. Then, Emil put a small mirror on the edge of the hole. That way, on the next day, he could stand on a nearby hillside, and if the mirror reflected the sun, it meant that no one had disturbed his handiwork. Emil was next level. Most bank robbers played checkers. Emil was playing three-dimensional chess. Consider that man's vision. The crew didn't take the money and run. They hid their tools in the bushes and went back to their rented condo on the golf course with plans to return to the bank on the next night. This wasn't a burglary. This was a weekend. During his downtime on Saturday, James Dinzio drove to Downey to complete his purchase of a ski boat. He paid $4,200 in cash. James towed the boat back to Laguna Niguel. On that same afternoon, something strange happened. I only say strange in hindsight because it didn't seem strange at the time, but come on. On Saturday afternoon, March 25, 1972, a car pulled into the parking lot of the United California Bank. No big deal, right? Waiting in the parking lot were a couple of 12-year-olds in Little League uniforms. Across their chest was the name of the sponsor of their team, Laguna Federal Savings and Loan. So what I'm describing is a car arriving to pick up Little Leaguers in the same parking lot as the United California Bank, which, unbeknownst to the driver of that car, has been burglarized. And that burglary is not finished. Laguna Federal Savings and Loan was at the other end of the same parking lot. Emil probably could have taken both banks that weekend, but he was focused on Nixon. The car was driven by the coach of the team, he used that parking lot as a pickup spot for players who needed a ride to the game. The field was a couple of miles up Crown Valley Parkway, not far from the West Nine condominium complex where the thieves were staying. That coach's name was Frank Cowley. I went down there two times, maybe three times that weekend to pick up my, 
my, my players down there to take them up to the uh, Little League fields. We drove by West Nine and East Nine and all those other places too, going up there yeah, at that time. He probably passed the guys. Oh, easily. And they took the ladder from the church right up in the hill. We could have been down there at the time. It could have been down there. But, you know, you're, there was nothing outstanding. It was just like picking up players. You're always on the alert. I mean, if somebody had run out with a gun or a weapon or, right. or if somebody looked suspicious, of course you would. You'd start, it's your nature, but nothing out of the ordinary. Did the kids on the team know what you did for a living? Yes, they did. That's a story in itself. Tell me. Uh, well, I guess I can't get fired now, but uh, let's say these kids a couple of times uh, were in the car when I went to a robbery. <laughs> really? <laughs> they waited, uh, yeah, they would uh, would be a, not a serious type matter, but uh, I wouldn't put them in danger, but a couple of times, attentional units and these Orange County unit, they could proceed to such and such a location, and other times I've had to drop them off to... Didn't normally do that, but uh, they, these are things you could get fired for back then. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Daily News, we report the news. We don't make it. We've been the source of Reader's Trust to cover everything from crime and politics to sports and schools. Get the news that matters most. Subscribe now for only pennies a day. Call 1-877-469-6133. Late Saturday night, with Coach Cali's team safely away from the United California Bank, the burglars went back. There was no drama. The burglary went just as planned. They climbed through the hole in the roof, popped open as many safe deposit boxes as they could, and climbed out of the bank. It went so well... The crew did it again on Sunday night. When they had breached the bank for the final time, Chuck Mulligan was in charge of getting rid of the tools. He took the 62 Oldsmobile from Early Dawson's garage and drove it to the bank. He asked Ronnie Barber to help him load the tools in the trunk. Ronnie had been sitting around the condo eating Jersey-made ice cream. Ronnie even tossed the ice cream container into the trunk while he was loading the tools. Then they did something I'll never understand. Instead of destroying those tools and torching the car, Chuck drove it back to Early's house, where he parked it in the garage. In total, the Youngstown crew popped open 458 safe deposit boxes. They left 42 boxes untouched. Maybe they ran out of time. Maybe they had too much loot to carry. Maybe they got tired. As the sun rose Monday morning, they decided to leave. Emil drilled a hole in the vault door to mess with the locking mechanism. That's why the door was jammed from the inside. The Youngstown boys left the bank for the final time Monday morning, March 27, 1972, not long before the bank opened to the public. On their way out, one of them dropped a single cotton glove that would become very important later on. What they left with is another murky point of the story. Newspaper stories written in the 1970s estimated the burglars made off with $8 million. Melissa Dinzio said that number was much higher. In the safety deposit boxes that were numbered that um, belonged to President Nixon, there was only $12 million. There wasn't $30 million. Emil was worried. He would have to explain to Jimmy Hoffa how the estimated take had fallen short. If Jimmy Hoffa thought my father... Um, you know... Uh, took the rest of it. 
Right. But, but, but I thought... I th- in a body bag. That last part is a little hard to hear. She said if Jimmy Hoffa thought her father had shorted him, her father might wind up in a body bag. The first time I interviewed Harry Barber more than 15 years ago, he said he didn't know how much they got. He told me there was so much money they had trouble transporting all of it. The thieves left as much as $15,000 in cash on the floor of the vault. They bundled up a bunch of the loot and hid it in bushes on Sea Island Drive a couple hundred yards from the bank. That bundle was later discovered. It was 2,000 stock certificates from General Electric, Standard Oil, Bell Telephone, and ITT, three $10,000 U.S. savings bonds, and another $10,000 certificate. The FBI put the value of what was in that bag at about $1.2 million. It was turned over to police. The rest of the loot, Harry said, was stuffed into the ski boat and covered with a tarp. That was his story in 2002. When I interviewed Harry recently, his story had changed. This time, he said they stuffed the loot neatly into suitcases. Emil, James, Chuck, and Phil carried the suitcases on a plane back to Youngstown. Harry said the boat, without any money inside, was driven from Southern California to Youngstown by his brother Ronnie, the Vietnam vet who was struggling from the effects of Agent Orange poisoning. Harry now says Ronnie didn't transport the stolen money. To this day, he is very protective of his little brother. Harry said all he got was $12,000 in a duffel bag with the promise of more. That promise was never kept. On Monday morning after the heist, Harry had one last job to do. He had to clean the condo. He wanted to leave no trace of any human presence in that place. Harry hired a cleaning crew to come in. He remembers paying them $240. He watched them scrub the walls. He made them wipe down the ceiling. I had people come and clean that house and take every goddamn thing out of every shelf and wash everything. When Harry left, he thought the place was spotless. He was wrong. On the afternoon of March 24th, the phone rang in the Santa Ana office of the FBI. The office was on 17th and Main in those days. About a dozen field agents worked in that office. The bank robbery unit was there, Jim Conway and Frank Calley. They were longtime partners. Conway died a few years back. I had talked with him a couple of times about this case. Callie always said Conway was good people. Callie grew up in upstate New York, between West Point and Poughkeepsie along the Hudson River. He said it was a suburban neighborhood, much like most of Orange County, California. He joined the Marine Corps in 1955. He was lucky. The Korean War was over, and the Vietnam War had not yet begun. Callie started at the FBI in 1962. Before he got into banks, he worked at the field office in San Diego. Everybody knows San Diego is the best office in the Bureau. The wives meet with the, with the director of the FBI, and they also meet with the head of the training division, right? And the head of the training division at that time was an assistant director by the name of John Malone. Uh, we're sitting in Malone's office, and, and uh, my little, uh, probably 18, 20-month-old son, Matt, reaches up, and oh, he started playing with him. Something was on Malone's desk, and my wife said, "Don't put that back." He started putting Malone's off. It's okay; he can't break it. It was an award he got for an earlier hijacking. Well, 
the kid broke it in 30 seconds. So. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, smashed it. Now, they always tell you, you never set any place you've ever been before, not to your hometown. It was who send you way away. They asked my wife where I'd like to go. She says, oh, I would, we would love to go to San Diego. I've never been there. And she told me that that night. And I said, honey, we got zero chance of going to San Diego right now. I opened my orders, and I got San Diego. The setting was great, but the work was not. Callie was assigned to study Serbo-Croatian language. When he became fluent, he was put on a secret detail that he hated. He spent most of his time at a desk, eavesdropping on phone conversations of suspected mobsters. He finally got out of the office when he was assigned to work on investigations into bombings aimed at civil rights leaders in the South. He started on the bank robbery unit in the late 1960s. By March of 1972, Callie lived in Mission Viejo. He had four children, he was 36 years old, and he was about to roll out on the most memorable case of his life. Callie remembers the first time he walked into the United California Bank Vault. His mind was full of questions. How they got in, why they got in, how they got in, who might have helped them, any evidence we could tie into the scene, what was the loss. He described the scene this way. A mess, total mess, concrete, concrete all over the desk. There's parts of some tools laying down in broken bits. There's uh, all the, a lot of the drawers pulled up, torn over. There's paper thrown over. Just like people were rummaging through trying to pick up some stuff. Uh, we saw some ashes, urns with ashes belonging to people. Uh, basically, the, the stuff that was left lying around was stuff that had been inside the safety deposit boxes. Callie remembers seeing a single gray cotton glove and he thought it was a little strange that money would be left on the floor. Then Callie took a look at the electrical box, which housed the alarms. They had bypassed, successfully bypassed the alarm system. That was with the liquid styrofoam? The liquid styrofoam. Well, that was two things. There was two things. There was, there was, there was the liquid styrofoam was from the gong that was activated. Put styrofoam in the gong in case they screwed up trying to deactivate the, the alarm system. The alarm system would have signaled that there was a, a break-in, a, a burglary in occurring, or a crime occurring at the vault, and they had ingeniously clipped and made a connection, shunted, so the current that goes in, which would normally be broken that the alarm was rerouted, so it was like there was no break-in. Here's how good Callie was at his job. He had a hunch that was 100% on the money. We don't have any burglars around here smart enough to do this stuff. We just didn't. It was obvious from our viewpoint that the, uh, it was somebody from out of town. There were no fingerprints, no shoe prints, no blood stains, no handwriting samples, no security videotape. I don't even think security videotape was a thing in 1972. And no witnesses. At the end of the investigation's first day, the FBI had very little to go on. They had a cotton glove and a hunch. Next time on Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions, The Getaway. With the bank breached and the FBI scrambling to find clues, the boys from Youngstown tried to slip away, and one of them got farther than he ever dreamed. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. 
Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark. Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace. And Phoebe Judge on Criminal. <laughs>